Welcome to Energy Matters with Robin Berlinski, the show that highlights and celebrates the champions who use their positive energy to change the world because your energy really does matter. We are heard internationally on your favorite podcast sites, including Pandora, Spotify, and Apple, where you'll also find a library of all of Robin's shows. And if you happen to live in or happen to be visiting our home base of Charleston, South Carolina, we're also heard 8 a.m. Sunday mornings on the iconic 1250 WTMA with the invaluable assistance of our dear friend and radio legend, John Quincy. And here she is without further ado, Robin Berlinski. Hey, Ron. Well, how are we today, Robin? I'm I know great. we're always business to discuss before we get into the fun Tis stuff. Tis the season. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're listening on the radio, remember we have a podcast, so, so check out... Our other episodes, they're all great. And today, Ron, I have a fun announcement. In January, I'm launching a whole new concept. It's a monthly workout for your nonprofit or your program. So right now, I'm in the middle of hosting this really fun, free, five-day, 30-minute nonprofit abundance retreat with some dynamic leaders from around the country. And what I'm learning is they really like these little boosts of energy. So based on these conversations, I'm launching this special opportunity in January. So it's like a gym. You know how you join a monthly or annual membership? Um, This will have live, recorded, and special Q&A bonuses. Its intent is to, quote, strengthen your program. Get it? The gym analogy there. And keep you living in abundance. Um, People can even just pay for one day, just like a gym. So follow me on Instagram to learn more about this January launch at Robin underscore Berlinski. It is going to be so much fun. I have a quick question. Are you down to one hour of sleep a night? (laughs) How do you do this? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I, I jump out of bed every day, like ready to go, but by nine o'clock at night, like, mm, don't don't call me. All right. Well, I used to think that you were the uh, <laughs> premier energy source, and I think you still are, but the, our next guest, our, our guest for this show anyway, is right there neck and neck with one of the most high energy people I've ever met. His name is Michael Trush. You locals will know him exactly as a ninth generation South Carolinian, maybe not so much that, but... Enjoyed a multifaceted career as an award-winning television journalist, popular college professor, and highly acclaimed Charleston tour guide. He is the author of three books, The Charm of Charleston, Charleston Yesterday and Today, and most recently, Tantalizing Tales of the Carolina Coast. What a delight to welcome Michael Trush to the show. Well, thank you very much, and I am very energized to be here with you, Robin. And, uh, I love it. I, I'm, I'm open to whatever you want to talk about in a very energetic way. And so it begins. Uh, you know, look, I, I glossed over your introduction, but mm-hmm. talk to us about some of your your favorite uh, multimedia journeys over the past. I mean, everybody knows you from Carolina Camera, but well, I know there's much more than that. Well, I mean, t- I w- when you first mentioned this and Robin was doing things in education a good bit, uh, it, it occurred to me that I've done something on education that a lot of people never have done. And it was a very fascinating experience. And today being Pearl Harbor Day, uh, it's interesting. I did this on Navy ships. There was once a, pro- a program called Program for a Float College Education, where college professors went on Navy ships, actually traveling around the world, teaching um, uh, crew, crew members uh, college courses so they could get credit at sea. And I happened to be at, at graduate school at Carolina, found out about this, and that Carolina had the franchise with the Department of Defense. And I said, heck, with these carols and this microfish i'm i'm going on board and ended up on five different ships the uh, newport the fuhrer the montgomery the o'bannon and the uh the hunley and taught western civilization courses to uh crew members on board and 
It was fascinating just to be able to go to some of the places like Djibouti. It's how many people know even where that is, and to be uh, the only civilian in each case on on a military vessel where I was kind of like very much uh, a peculiar anomaly, but it ended up being an awful lot of interesting fun. Yeah, let me point out something to the audience, you know, a little behind-the-scenes stuff. So Michael is very gracious. I think we've had to cancel him a couple times. Uh, I've been canceled before. Well, but but this this is it shows how the gods are smiling on us. So today's actually Pearl Harbor Day. Right. We're recording this, and you have the story of yeah, teaching on yeah, Navy yeah, ships. Yeah. So... There's something that makes perfect sense there. So what were you teaching? What classes? Uh, Western Civ. And basically, we, we, we go back as far as, you know, talking about, and, and, and you know, I didn't, you know, the names and dates were important, but it was a general concept. It was what what did the Crusades essentially do and, and their significance? What it was, what, what, what prompted the voyages of discovery? How, where did the idea of common law come from, uh, ironically, from a king in England and uh, because of that common law, that curia regis, our king's court, uh, we use those same principles to go against the king years later to find our independence. And, of course, that's a, that was another aspect. And we went all the way up into uh, middle 19th century uh, American histories and, and, and whatever interested them, whatever tangent they wanted to go off on, because these were very motivated members of these ships who wanted college degrees so they could advance. And I was... So impressed at these 19 and 20 year old enlistees from nowhere, Iowa and oblivion, Tennessee, that were spending hours taking notes, taking tests on top of the long hours they worked on those ships. And so I did everything I could with them, including when we crossed the equator, I went through what was called the shellback initiation. If you haven't ever crossed the equator on, 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 a, on a vessel, um, I you, haven't, Robin. How about you? I, I, you do let that me all think. The time. Uh, okay, no. okay, you are a polywalk. Okay, <laughs> and so when you cross the equator, you go through initiation, which on navy ships back in the seventies was basically worse than Paris Island. I mean, they came in at four o'clock in the morning with a big barrel of ice. I stayed in officers' quarters in a stateroom and threw the thing into my rack, dragged me out, made me crawl around on hands and knees as they beat me on the back with pieces of fire hose called shillelaghs and just tormented me for hours and and of course when i graduated they all slapped me on the back shook my hand crossed the equator went down to mombasa kenya picked up some uh, other crewmen who flew in uh and didn't cross the equator before and so we went back north i was a shellback and they were polywogs and they were thinking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who's this guy with the longish blonde hair in the Georgia T-shirt beating me on the back with a shillelagh? It was great. So you would come on the ship, and how long would you stay for a Well, um, it, var- it varied depending on the ship. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I was on three months. You know, a typical cruise was months at a time. But I would typically fly in and meet the ship. And it was quite an experience flying into Jeddah, Saudi Arabia during Ramadan uh, with my eyes odd shirt. That was a that was a trip. And then um, and then you know then you know I'd, I'd I'd leave them somewhere like my last night after the Newport. We were in Dunkirk, France, and everybody, including the captain, who just got stinking inebriated and and babbling uh, hieroglyphics. It was it was just so fun. And 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 then of course we, we took this cruise up. Uh, towards Norway and Scandinavia, and it was a NATO cruise. We were in big formation with other ships, and we were very close to the 65th parallel, which if you cross, you become what's called a blue nose, 
And I was sitting around the officer, and I ate in what was called the wardroom, where all the officers ate, although sometimes I did go down to the mess decks because I wanted to kind of mingle with the men, which officers don't do in the Navy, by the way. So they, they loved me for that, I think. But anyway, I asked the captain, I said, sir, do you think there's any chance we could drift a little farther north so we could cross the 65th parallel, we could do the Blue Nose Initiation? He said, sure, Michael, I'll break NATO regulations <laughs> just for you, and we'll do that. So, so, so I, I'm not a Blue Nose, but I am a shellback. Oh that's, my gosh. That's fast. I don't think we've ever had a guest where I just lean back in my chair. Like, I don't even put, I'm not even interested in talking. I just sort of like, <laughs> just, just keep going. He, he is fast. Amazing. So I'll ask a question that Robin will ask. Okay. Uh, and then she can expound on it. Okay. You know, again, the show is called Energy Matters. Sure. And there are people who are seemingly born with this innate <clears throat> ability to engage an audience. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up your proverbial you-know-what, but I, you're a, a fascinating guy. And I, I've been in your company a number of times. And like Robin, I could sit and listen to your stories all day long. Is that a family trait? Did that come from somebody else? Oh, or yeah. did you yeah. begin this when you were a kid? People were no, watching you do Well, I was the class clown in, in school because I came from a big family. I needed to stand out in some way. But my mother... Uh, they once there was a once a, a uh, an event at Spoleto called the the Warrior Ant, and one of my parents' friends gave that to my nickname to my mother because she was this, and not that she was angry, but that she was just so energetic. And um, if she had been a man, she would have been the Pope. She was the most Catholic person who ever lived. She dragged us to church six days a week, and then on Sunday the seventh the seventh uh, week. So. I went to church more times by the time I was 17 years old than most people will ever have gone in their lives. And my knees have the calluses to prove that. <laughs> I was forced to go to confession, which if you don't know as a Catholic, you go in and basically uh, make up a lot of things that you really didn't do because you wouldn't dare tell the priest what you <laughs> did do because you might get back to your parents and you get in trouble. And then I went to a all-boys school uh, up until I graduated. Porter Gad, when I graduated, it was still all males. And our mission every day was to wreak as much havoc as possible in those classrooms that we could disrupt uh, the classrooms as much as possible. And believe me, it was, it was quite a competition because we had some very creative people at Porter Gad. And, um, and so, you know, it, it, just, it just sort of uh, my circumstances and my family were sort of an extension of that always energetic. I mean, when you're in a big family and they're uh, all high strung you just tend to be that way. Did you did you love history back uh, then? Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't ha take as much interest in history as I took later on. It's, it's odd that that you know I, I I feel like we have it backwards in life. You should you should go to school when you're older and you realize and appreciate things. When you're younger, again you're you know you're throwing spitballs in class. You're you're m mocking the teacher. You're in college. You're skipping class to go to some some party. Whereas later in life, and I went, as I guess it started when I went back to graduate school, I started taking a real interest in things. And of course, um, I, I did the thing here in, in Charleston and television. So a lot of it, it was just all kind of interesting subjects, but some of it was the background of Charleston. And so when my TV career ended, I turned to giving tours and I wanted to know anything that anybody might ask me. So I I studied everything. I, you know, I became quite a, quite a botanist. I, I mean, I, I would tell people that Spanish moss is neither Spanish nor moss. It's a plant called Tillandsia usneoides, which, like the other 
epiphyte that we have on oak trees, uh, Pleopeltis polypodioides, say that five times, are not wait, are wait, not wait. parasites. Is he making this up? No, no, no these are real. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, I, I, again, moss, I'm just sitting back and listening. Real, here. real moss is the green stuff that grows on your wall. That's what's right. called a bryophyte. That does not flower. It's the uh, Thalansia usnioides does flower. It's a very small flower. You can't see it, but it was the French who had a, a colony near the Spanish down near Hilton Head in the 16th century that um, saw it and mocked the what they th- thought were the scruffy-looking Spanish by calling it uh, Barda Espanol, uh, which Spanish beard. And where the moss came in, I could not tell you. But resurrection fern is Pleopeltis polypodioides. It's that green stuff you see on oak trees that gets turns brown and then turns green, then turns brown. It's because it... Uh, when it's dry, it retracts its nutrients into the base of the stem, what's called abscission, to b- keep it alive. And then when it gets wet, it spreads that water back out so it comes alive again, thus resurrection for it. So I, I would find out things like that just so I, I could explain anything that somebody wanted to you hear. Know, it's funny. I speak English, but I didn't I understand 90% of what I <laughs> and, and if you don't live in South Carolina, you probably want to come here now just yeah. to look at that moss. Yeah, you do. You do. Yeah. And, and, and you know things that people see every day, uh, that, that that are you know um, that are it's, this is kind of a fascinating educational kind of thing. Um, you're looking at it every day, but you don't know what you're looking at, and it does uh, basically create create architectural strength and an optical illusion. It's what's called ontosis, which is a Greek word meaning to squeeze, and that's what you see in these columns of the most of these porticos around town. There, and think of if you squeezed a tube of toothpaste. The thicker end would become much more dense and impenetrable. Turn that upside down, and that has great tensile strength from the bottom to the top. Well, there is a slight taper in columns that most people can't detect, which not only creates more strength in holding up the roof of the portico, but also creates the optical illusion that the roof is higher than what you're looking at. And these are the kind of things that, you know, they figured out back, you know, um, thousands of years ago, in Greece, so it's fascinating that, that it's still uh, uh, witnessed in Charleston today, even though we don't know who it is. Uh, let me jump back to your childhood again. Who <clears throat> were some of the more memorable <clears throat> teachers or people you looked up to, mentors, who gave you this love of history, uh-huh, of teaching, uh-huh. of, of uh, personality? There had to be a few in your past that you still remember. Well, I, there, there were, and, and what, what the, the great fortune that we had at Goud and then at Porter Goud is, is we were back at a time when there were people who took interest in educating others who didn't really need to be there. And since it was an all-boys school, these were men, and they were mostly former military. Admiral Florence, Captain Holtz, uh, Major Richardson. These guys um, had served honorably in our military, typically were brilliant in math and science and history, and they made it more interesting to us. But what's odd is, the person who really sort of recognized one talent I had was somebody who was the antithesis of military. Uh, uh, P.K. Patterson, when I was in high school, was was scruffy and long-haired and, and kind of mocked the old uh, military guys. But he got us to write things. And I wrote a... I'm, excuse me, my, my throat is getting scratchy here. Excuse me. <clears throat> well, we, we were writing poetry, and I'd never written a poem before, and I wrote this poem, and he said... And he told me, he said, this is brilliant. He says, you, you really should exercise your talent at writing. So uh, I went to University of Georgia to the journalism school. Uh, I, my, all my family had gone to UVA, 
and UVA was a very prestigious school. I was accepted there, but it was still all men and wearing coats and ties to class. So I went to University of Georgia one weekend, saw all those beautiful girls, great football stadium and great campus. I said, this is where I'm going. And so I was fortunate enough to get that um, extra bit of training to sort of uh, refine my writing abilities. And, and it really helped when I was writing scripts when I was doing Carolina Camera at Channel 5 because I wrote scripts, I edited my own copy and that sort of thing, and I wanted the images to match the words. I want, and I wanted the, the, the uh, m- words to be musical, to have, have uh, kind of, a, kind of a, 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 a beat, a, a cadence that would appeal to people. So I used a lot of alliteration and stuff like that, and people um, uh, enjoyed that. And I did that for about 20 years. But even that <clears throat> job, you had to have, you don't just walk in and answer an ad. I wanted television host. doesn't work that way. You have to use connections. You have to show right, people right. what you do. And somehow somebody takes a chance and brings you in. Uh, what was the secret of you landing that gig? Well, I was, I went, I was actually w- working for the Post and Courier. After one of my Navy gigs, I, um, I taught at Porter Gallup where I had gone to school. Then I just wanted to get back to journalism, so I got a job at the Post and Courier, and I was, I, was doing, I was something like the education reporter or something like that. And I was at some conference where I got up and asked the first question, and I asked it in a way that apparently impressed one of the people who was there who happened to be the news director at Channel 5, and they were looking for someone who had good presence on camera and also could write a grammatical sentence, which was pretty much unheard of <laughs> in television at the time. Yes. And so uh, I think my writing style stood out to them. Um, they saw that I had the energy that I, I was, I once was uh, fairly attractive. And so uh, I, 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 weren't we all, you know, except for that. Robin, who's always been. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that, that's where it started. Okay. So the other thing you've done, Uh and we've had authors on the show before, and to sit down and decide, okay, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. Wow. A a lot of people talk about it. Very few people actually sit down. Robin, how many authors have we had? Oh, my gosh. Quite a few. Yeah. And it's always intriguing to me that someone decides, okay, I'm finally going to do this. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it goes on for years. They put it away. They come back to it. It's not something that they're you know focused on doing it right away. What's your style, and how did you decide to do the first one, and then subsequently the other? Well, the first two actually I was commissioned to do. Um, I wait. Has having never been mm-hmm. an author, somebody commissioned you to write a book? Yes, I. I, oh. I mean, I, I've written plenty of things, uh, Rob, including short stories and stuff like that, but never published any anything that was bound. Okay. Well, my first call came from local people who knew me from television who said, we want to do a, a book, a, 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 a coffee table book on Charleston on all these different subjects. And we figure, you know more about these subjects than anybody else. So I did that. It was called The Charm of Charleston. Then I happened to see a ad on Craigslist, which I thought this must even be a joke about, you know, uh, we're looking for someone to do a book on Charleston. Well, it turned out it was Publications International Limited out of Chicago. And you may have remembered these books that were, that were called Yesterday and Today. It was a series. You had Boston Yesterday and Today, San Francisco Yesterday and Today, St. Louis Yesterday and Today. Um, and so I did Charleston Yesterday and Today. Now, Rob, wait, let me interrupt. <clears throat> Robin's shaking your heads. I've not yeah, heard of this. I have heard yeah. Yeah. And it was a... That's pretty cool. And unfortunately... Um, PIL just completely dropped the whole publication thing because books weren't selling and, and went to an, another venue and, and wouldn't allow me to buy the rights. So that book you can't really get anymore, but you could still get the Charm of Charleston. And then um, just <clears throat> after retiring from my tour business and just wanting to have things to do, I, I just started writing uh, memories of places that we'd 
been to interesting people and did a 30-chapter book called uh, Tantalizing Tales of the Carolina Coast, which you, you have a copy of, and it's just basically... An autograph. An autograph copy, which makes it worth even less. And so, um, <laughs> we, and so it was a lot of fun because it, it, it's based on real things and real places, but I did change the names for fear of you know any legal um, mumbo-jumbo. So, so everything in there is real. It's just that uh, names have been protect, uh, changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. <laughs> Understood. So we live in Charleston, South Carolina. Admittedly, we don't make any bones about this, even though the show is international and right. people here. But Charleston and South Carolina have this allure for the global <laughs> audience. And, you know, you doing tours and meeting people from all over the world. Is that correct? Am I yes. on the, the correct impression that people look at this and they want to move here? They want to live here. They want to experience what it's like. How much of that do you get in your uh, in oh, your work? Oh, I, I, I see it all the time, especially on the tours. In fact, to get to the point where I was discouraging people, no, I think you really want to move to to uh, uh, Kansas City um, because you know so many people are moving here. It's changed the city completely. But but one of these, it goes back to um, <clears throat> one of the big events in our history was the writing of the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina in 1669 by the um, <clears throat> humanist John Locke, who was commissioned by Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony. Ashley Cooper, which is pronounced Cooper, not Cooper, Cook, like Book Cooker Took. And uh, he, he included in, in paragraph 97, he includes religious tolerance for any belief, belief. even animist beliefs of the, of the uh, local tribes were accepted as, as a religion. So what this did was it opened the floodgates to people of all different kind of backgrounds. We got uh, dissenters, we got Jews, we got Catholics, we got uh the of course the english the quakers and uh this 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 uh melting pot uh, i think greatly contributed to the overall knowledge that people had in the city uh, which of course led to vast abilities to create trade and and, and connections with the outside world and then, then of course the slave trade un unfortunately uh brought which brought west africans here also contributed to our cultural mix but it also enhanced the the wealth and as a result, we have this gloriously beautiful architectural city that's so charming and so many vestiges of old Europe that you really don't see anywhere else in America. And so that's, and we're on the sea. And there's a magic about being on the coast that no one can deny. Robin, I think he has an external hard drive plugged into his head. <laughs> Ooh. He can't keep all this stuff. I'm exhausted. Room. Okay. So what I'm fascinated as well about your ninth generation yep. Charleston. Actually, actually, ninth generation South Carolina and seventh generation Charleston. Right? Uh, South Carolina uh, origins come from people who migrated actually from the north. Um, who were Germans whose last name was Rausch, R-A-U-C-H, and up around Orangeburg and uh, uh, uh uh, Georg Rausch and his son Andreas Rausch decided they would anglicize their names by calling themselves what Rausch means in England in English, which is smoke. So they call themselves Andrew Smoke and George Smoke. Well, they misspelled smoke, S-M-O-A-K, and that's where you got smoke. Oh, that's where that's that's cool. And of course, no a lot of those old towns, they had the possessive. You had maggots, you had smokes, you had bells, crossroads, because it was based on some business or or entrepreneur that basically ran that intersection, and that's how many of those town names began. But anyway, the, the Charlestonian connection didn't come until the 
late 18th century when the first truches arrived who were French. Now, one of our dear mutual friends is Charles Waring, who mm-hmm. publishes the Mercury, right. and I think he's 11th generation. Oh, yeah. There's, believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm paltry in terms of Charleston generations. I told people, they'd say, gosh, you're a 7th generation. I said, I know people who are 14th they can trace their ancestors to the to the boat that first came here in 1670. So, yeah, there's a lot of old blood in Charleston. So who would be your most famous uh, ancestor? My most famous ancestor? Um, Besides your mother. Um, well, Andrew Smoke uh, did uh, end up fighting in the Revolution for, uh, and he, uh, he, he fought under, um, under uh, uh, Andrew Pickens, I believe. He was a militiaman upstate. And then um, I had uh, two... Confederate soldier ancestors, both of whom were decorated members, one of the Charleston Battalion, the other the Palmetto Guard, very, both, both very famous units. In fact, uh, one of them was at the battle on Morris Island that's famously depicted in the, in the movie uh, Glory, the assault on Battery Wagner. And he was one of the Charleston Battalion that helped win that battle for the South. And then a pro- probably the ancestor that was most well-known locally was my great-grandfather, uh, Paul E. Truche, who... Got his start during the earthquake by being a teenager who realized these people living in tent cities needed things like toilet paper and uh, different goods. And he started a company literally with nothing and became a millionaire by the early uh, 20th century with, with the Truche Wholesale Company where they uh, sold or, or rented things. They were on Meeting Street and it was there for years and years and years. And, and people remembered him as being one of the most scrupulous businessmen. There was somebody who apparently had rented a safe. So the safe came back. He found a envelope with cash inside it. This is back when cash was worth a lot and took it to that person personally when he easily could have kept it. And that, that was the kind of thing that he did that, that made him very well respected among the merchant community here in Charleston. All right, well, as we're getting ready to wrap this, and not quite yet, but, you know, you've spent your mm-hmm. lifetime perfecting the art of communicating through right. writing. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it would appear that writing is not nearly as prized as it used to be with yeah. autocorrect and spell check and mm-hmm. everything else, predictive text. Uh, what does that feel like to you, and what advice do you give to the next generation to preserve this art? Well, I think, I think that uh, there is... A beauty in writing that you can achieve and that you can perceive, um, and that's what I try. I try to do, and I've actually on my fourth book right now, which is a novel. It's um, called A Man for All Reasons, based on you heard that title given to uh, Sir Thomas More, who wrote um, while he was waiting to have his head cut off in the Tower of London. He wrote dialogues uh, for the relief of tribulations, and I created dialogues between a male. I mean, two male characters, one contesting why marriage should be inevitable, one saying that it, it, it should be inevitable, and having a, a woman as sort of the referee in between. And it's all fiction, it's all farcical, but I like to think that the writing style, and I've let people read parts of it, they've just been in tears. And I mean, um, you, you, yeah, you can see this in Instagram, you can have somebody that can talk to you, and you could you could do that, and I could read these these things, but I think reading the script and it sort of catching in your mind uh we're not because if often i'll say things to people and they'll only remember one sentence you know they remember one paragraph this you can go back and you can sort of start all over again fantastic well guess what 
What? We're about out of time. Okay. We need a part two. I think so. <laughs> okay. Let me just say the bit of business you've been listening to Energy Matters with Robin Berlinski. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd love your feedback at thelearningring.com where incidentally there'll be some additional information about Michael. You want to get in touch with him, buy his books, that kind of stuff. And you can also reach out to Robin with questions and comments and even chances to win, I love to say, fabulous prizes. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.